we have to have an unbelonging. We have to have a belonging to ourselves as a fundamental starting point of being able to avail ourselves of any other kinds of spiritual practice, development, formation. Otherwise, we are subject to being corrupted beyond measure. So do you remember a time when you felt like you just didn't belong? Maybe you were the new kid at school or only one of your race in the room or never fully accepted by your family or maybe it was a new team or job or company and you felt like no one got you or accepted you. Most of us have felt like an outsider at some point in our lives. Some of us for most of our lives. We all seek that profound feeling of belonging, of being seen, understood, and embraced fully for who we are. This experience of belonging we know is also a key element of a life well-lived, of a good life. So to wrap up our January Jumpstart series, we're diving into the world of belonging. And our guest teachers today really understand those deep human longings intimately. Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams is an author, Zen priest, and founder of the Center for Transformative Change, who has explored belonging through the lens of social justice. And Melissa Carter is Senior Director for Spiritual Life at NYU, helping students embrace their humanity and discover a sense of purpose. As you'll hear, Rev. Angel really calls us to belong to ourselves first before seeking external validation. And Melissa helps peel away the false narratives so that she could live authentically. The journey to belonging, it really begins within. By returning to our inner wholeness, we can then connect to others from a place of truth. So join us as Rev. Angel and Melissa reveal how practices like mindfulness help us rediscover our deepest sense of belonging and then move more heart-centeredly and openly into a broader community. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Good Life Project is brought to you by Understood Explains, a podcast that's like a beacon for parents navigating the special education system. Hosted by Juliana Urtube, a special education expert, this season is all about individualized education plans, or IEPs. Juliana breaks down complex topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP in a way that's easy to grasp. I checked out an episode of Understood Explains about the difference between IEPs and 504 plans, and I was struck by the balance of empathy and practical advice 
It's not just about understanding the system. It's about empowering parents and caregivers to advocate for their children, which is just so important. So I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Hey, so I have kind of been saying this for years. We are in the throes of a global belonging crisis. Human beings are hardwired with a deep need to belong, to connect with others fueled by shared values, beliefs, interests, a well-defined path, or a grand purpose, sometimes all of the above. And for generations, we've relied on a sense of certainty and the defined path that came from membership in established communities to allow us to function and flourish, to give us that sense of belonging. Faith-based organizations, community clubs, employers, trade organizations, local leagues or associations and more, they all gave us a sense of belonging, of shared beliefs, practices, values, purpose, and from that, a certain baseline calm and ease. They served as a bit of a keel in an uncertain world, a place to come home, to touch stone and reconnect with other people who seem to, in some way, welcome us and see the world in similar ways, to be a part of something bigger than us. But over the last few generations, two phenomena have kind of blown this foundation to bits. The world has become exponentially less reliable. Turmoil, ever-present change, and uncertainty have become the new norm. Disruption is the new black, and there's no going back, leaving us with a level of near-paralyzing, pervasive unease. We don't know what's coming next, and we are not well-equipped as human beings to be in that space. At the same time, tens of millions have lost faith in the very organizations and entities and individuals and communities that have kept them coming together and feeling centered and connected in times of change. Belief in religion, in government, in membership in spiritual organizations has plummeted. Faith in employers and the assumption that they and the communities they fostered will, quote, be there has kind of been eviscerated. Employee connection and culture, they become increasingly fragmented as remote work and much more superficial digital misconnection replaces deeper real-life interactions at stunning speed. Long work hours and always-on virtual tethers have exacerbated the problem, leaving less time for participation in communities that have served the need for belonging for generations. And despite the unrelenting grip of global digital connection, there's this pervasive sense of mass disenfranchisement and disconnection of longing to belong on nearly every level. The compounded impact has left a sea of humanity walking around with this growing sense of loss, of pain, of unease, anxiety, and discontent. But so often we don't know why we're feeling this. We know something's not right. We can feel it in our bones, but we don't see the real source of unease, where it's coming from or how to fix it. We don't realize the crushing lack of stillness and joy is manifestation of a belonging crisis. I was oblivious to the impact of the emerging belonging crisis for years, even though I had literally built a series of successful companies and endeavors and projects that served this fundamental need. 
I never truly understood what I was doing or why I was succeeding. And it finally clicked when I began to kind of analyze what was working in my endeavors over the last two decades and why. It's kind of a lightning bolt moment. From the early 2000s, when I had the great fortune of bringing together a yoga community in Hell's Kitchen, New York City, pretty much on the eve of 9-11, and seeing the profound connection and bond and openness and vulnerability and kindness that emerged from that season. For a number of years after that, we ran a 10-month mission-driven entrepreneurship program and a sort of alternative conscious business MBA type of experience. And the original vision was to solve three problems, lack of knowledge, lack of guidance, and lack of community. I had assumed the first two would be the biggest pain points. I could not have been more wrong. Knowledge is pretty easy for those who really want to seek it. And so is guidance for those who seek it. Lack of community, though. A deep sense of belonging to a like-minded group of humans questing after similar things with a tightly connected set of beliefs and values, transparency and devotion. That, it turns out, is not only the deepest source of pain and paralysis and stifled potential, but the greatest well of possibility, both in business and in life. When we created and then delivered people into a curated, powerfully aligned community, when we solved this belonging crisis on a micro level, magic happened. Years of discomfort, discontent, suffering, alienation, incapacity began to fall away, replaced by things like belief and joy and faith and trust and vulnerability and openness, devotion, directed action, lightness, passion, and contentment. And we saw this very same thing a number of years later when we decided to launch our annual adult summer camp, Camp GLP. For five incredible years, we gathered a community from literally around the world to spend four days living and playing and learning and connecting together. It all went down in a 130-acre kids' sleepaway camp in upstate New York with people aged 18 to 81 living together in bunks. These are kids' bunks with kid-sized beds. We learned how to welcome people in to create safety, to establish a set of shared beliefs and norms, and offer mechanisms for folks of all social orientations and backgrounds, from the staunchest introverts to the wild extroverts, to people who have been in all types of businesses and communities, to rapidly connect with others and to go deep, to just drop the facade, drop the posturing, and get real and know they'd be seen and accepted without having to perform to some fictional and always elusive ideal. And over the years, thousands of people attended camps and left with lifelong, what I would call nine-year-old summer-level friends and a deep sense of enduring community that sustains to this day, even though it's been years since the last gathering. The depth of relationships that emerged from that season was truly breathtaking to see. And over time, I realized just how deeply rooted belonging is in both human nature and modern society, how this seemingly unshakable need to belong is universal, how it's a psychological, physiological, and environmental need. And I came to believe that belonging is really the sort of secret skeleton key that unlocks our capacity to satisfy so many of our other basic needs, for things like security on one side to our aspirational yearning for self-actualization. It's a primary form of connectedness, a set of sacred fibers and the tapestry of connection 
that are core to the ability to live truly good lives. And mounting research bears this out in a big way. Now, there is, of course, like every quality of human experience, a potential underbelly to belonging. But what will people do, both positive and negative, in the name of belonging? What will they give up in terms of humanity, compassion, money, power, judgment, or morality? How does this unrelenting yearning control our actions, our moods, and the way we experience life? And how can we solve for belonging in ways that empower rather than strip dignity or agency and autonomy? in ways that celebrate our individuality, even in the context of deeply connected community, in ways that lift us up as a society. And I realize that beyond the ability to serve individual needs and unlock potential and joy on the large-scale level, the belonging crisis also represents a massive opportunity for individuals, for groups, for organizations who see what's really happening, a chance to not only play a role in easing personal suffering, but for those inclined to build new vehicles of belonging, of connection that meet this moment, ones that offer mass numbers of people something to feel connected to, to believe in, and to belong to, which is why I am super excited to be wrapping up our January Jumpstart series with wisdom from two amazing humans and friends who have been living in this conversation, convening community in so many ways, and have deep insights to share. See you in just a bit. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by NetSuite. So I remember when our businesses were just starting to really scale. It was amazing and also added complexity and stress. And the things that I used to do in hours were taking days, too many spreadsheets, too many systems, no single source of truth. If that sounds familiar. You should know these numbers. 37,000. 25 and 1. 37,000 businesses have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth, manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash goodlife. That's netsuite.com slash goodlife to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash goodlife. Our first guest, Rev. Angel Kyoto Williams, knows the struggle to find belonging intimately. Called the most intriguing African-American Buddhist by Library Journal, Rev. Angel is an author, spiritual teacher, and founder of the Center for Transformative Change, who has spent over 15 years exploring how to transform society by transforming our inner lives. Ordained as a Zen priest, she's known for her unflinching willingness to both sit with and speak uncomfortable truths with love. And Rev. Angel explains how we often suppress or cut off parts of ourselves, in order to fit into societal roles and ideologies. And this leaves us feeling disconnected and lacking belonging. And she calls for belonging to ourselves first, before trying to belong to any group or collective. When we reclaim all aspects of who we are, we can fully inhabit our humanity and gift ourselves to the larger collective. Rev. Angel shares how practices like mindfulness that help us return to ourselves and rediscover our sense of belonging within can be central to this exploration. Here's Rev. Angel. We've been knowing each other for a chunk of years now. And when it was first introduced to you through a, a, an old mutual friend of ours, you were introduced to me as Rev. Angel, Zen Buddhist priest, and a whole bunch of other stuff after that. And, and I noticed over the last year or so, you started dropping the identifiers or changing them that came after your name. And then most recently, it seems like the iteration is just sensei. You've had this evolution of being, evolution of thought, and you draw from so many different worlds that part of my curiosity was, was this shedding of identifiers also, to a certain extent, you signaling more publicly that when you show up for me, you're going to get my unique synthesis of a vast array of different bodies of work and my own thought and experience in the world, and it's going to come out. So, you know, like don't necessarily show up expecting a Zen Buddhist teaching mm -hmm. because I may take you on a left turn because I, I see things differently. And it was almost laying the foundation for the freedom to say like, this is my unique synthesis. This is this is my my take, and it's you know I'm blending a lot of different things and bringing my own thing into it. So um, and sort of like creating the freedom to step out of that and step into your own thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's really bidirectional. So at the core of it is just that I I don't 
I was like, I, I don't do ghettos at all. Like I can't, I can't inhabit any kind of um, fixedness. It, it, it gives me, like, you know, makes my skin, you know, feel like the, uh, you know, crawly, creepy, crawly. And so it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter if it's like kind of like swimming in the sea of, you know, Zen of the Zen ghetto. And, you know, we, I'm, I'm not using the term of, of ghetto in the way that we often, which we sort of like are immediately yeah. relating it to socioeconomic status in largely black neighborhoods. That's not what I mean, but I mean the ghetto in the, in the true sense of the word, like the sort of coming together of a, like a, of a likeness um, and, and that you, you inhabit that, that likeness and it's kind of close and, um, uh, you know, really rubbing up against each other. And so it, it just doesn't work for me. It's never, it's actually never been who I am and, you know, business marketing. I, you know, many years ago, my first book, so now 20 years ago, uh, came out and there, there is a way that you have to, you know, if you're not speaking to someone, you're not speaking to anyone, right. In, in marketing. And so I wore that cloak for a little while in order to, facilitate that particular message and that particular conversation. And yet I'm always drawing from, you know, the many conversations and even in, you know, which I hadn't remembered, I was, I, I think even how they describe being black, which is the first book, you know, it's, it, it talked about, you know, like, you know, Wu-Tang, right. A hip, hip hop group, Wu-Tang like meets Zen, Zen Buddhism and like that kind of mashup because, um, there's also on the other side this impulse towards ownership. It's so much a part of uh, our different cultures, and particularly these spiritual cultures. And as they've been designed, it's sort of like, okay, now you're one of us, and so we own you, lock, stock, and barrel. Like, you know, so all of my thinking that that all of my thinking and and what I'm drawing from would somehow belong to and solely be of white Western convert Zen Buddhism is absurd that I left race behind, you know, that I left my, that I left hip hop behind, that I, that I left misogynist hip hop, hop behind, you know, that all of the things that I grew up in, that I left like queer culture in the village in New York city in the, you know, eighties and nineties behind, and it doesn't come through is absurd. And there's in many ways, it's more likely to happen with me as the kind of outlier, the apparent outlier of you know what Zen Buddhist priests look like, right? They're they're most often white, middle aged, and, and not only male. Uh, they've done a pretty good job with that, but often, most often, white and and middle aged, um, and and also of a you know particular class, far far more often um, middle to upper upper middle class. And so then really anything that's coming out of me must be because I got it from them and from some places. And I just pushed back at that all along the way. It was really important. It's important in the sense of, you know, lineage. And it's also important in the sense of recognizing that in, in so many ways that that is the nature of, of Black people's you know, in America in particular, is that we are jazz, right? We are drawing from the multiplicity of our experiences and pulling from so many things in so many ways, not only just the joyful things and wonderful things, but also the pains and the heartaches and the oppressions and the, the, the limitations imposed and that we're making music out of it, out of all of that. And that's, I think, one of our unique contributions. You, you get to be the, the, the whole of who you are. You get to you know, bring all of these things in and you don't have to eschew this part of yourself or leave it at the door in order to belong 
to this, you know, community, this space, this practice, this, you know, institution, this so on, that, and that we're all enriched for that. We're all more enriched. And, uh, you know, I have this whole theory about, as many people do, you know, about the, about the divisions and like what, what really underlies the divisions. And for me, um, a major part of that is this allowing of our complexity and that the more that I can signal to people that, that this complexity, that my not getting boxed into the, you know, <laughs> like black Yoda, <laughs> like, like I'm, I'm like the black queer Yoda, like Zen and like, no, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to riff on things and I'm going to use the cadences that come from, you know, black church, you know, even though I don't situate myself in black church, I'm still influenced by that cadence and that rhythm and that repetition and the way that I bring, you know, words to things and and that I don't have to sit, you know, quietly, stoically, <laughs> you know, in the Zen cool way. And I do that too. And that all of them are of the same this of this one piece. And and I love that you say it because I, I say it all the time the balance of that is that I belong to, you know, no thing and everything, right? That the entry is into everything and it allows me to move freely amongst things, which, you know, hysterically in a very backwards way is also a very Zen concept. So here's my curiosity around this. So I was the kid when I was in, you know, like when I was younger, where I could move freely be- between any group, but I wasn't a part of any group. I never felt like I belonged to any one thing. And there was a pain of isolation, even though I was mm. kind of accepted. I, I was fine in any one group. And and I know, you know, like having spoken about this with you over the years, it, it seems like you had a similar experience. Like you, although more isolated and more, more pushed, isolated, pushed out, yeah. more I pushed think, out. Yeah, far, far more, yeah, more yeah. isolated. I was, re- I was yeah. really painfully aware that I didn't belong. Hmm. Do you feel like that experience or that feeling continues to this day to inform the way that you think through your ideas, your the way that you bring yourself to the world, and also the, the way that you offer ideas and practices and paths to others? Yeah, absolutely. I want to extend that runway, you know, to the young angel that didn't belong in, in all of the spaces that I am in. And I think it, um, it, 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 it's more that I feel through it. Like I feel mm. it, right. It's like, I feel it's like, you know, tilt the words this way and this way and this way and like turn it like prismatically. So I think I, I look back on it and I go, Oh, I speak prismatically. I'm turning this slightly, 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 so that people can find their way into that angle, that little angle. John Kabat-Zinn talks about this orthogonal rotation of consciousness. And I think about that idea a lot in terms of how I language things, which is to say, you know, I'll run off to the extremes and then nuance in between. And it's it's to break it, right? It's, it's to break it of the binaries. I feel like binaries are the devil. And, and so and so I break it of the binaries and that gives people permission to find their way in. And so that absolutely lives with me. It's it's not in the background. It is it is in the foreground. And I feel it. I feel the, you know, even when we're, you know, zooming everything, you know, 
the the person that might be left out and and then you know like tilt the language like a little bit give them an entry point yeah we give people all sorts of practices but underneath underneath the underneath we haven't fortified people's ability and commitment the commitment first and then the ability to come back to themselves mm. There's so much fear, right, in, in, in inhabiting, like, what it means to truly be with yourself. There's pain. There's trauma, right? There's really good reasons to simply be uncomfortable in the body. And, and for me, so many of the original sins, if you will, of all sorts of oppressive systems, situations, is the the cutting away, the cutting off of people's ability to come back to themselves and trust themselves and trust the, the wholeness of their experience, to trust their experience, not, not whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or something. And so even Buddhism that teaches this notion of like, you know, pleasant and kind of a dispassion around it. Mm. I, I feel, I'll just say, you know, in the <laughs> contemporary language, takes too damn long <laughs> for people to really develop that essential thing without other layers that eventually distract, right? And so there's like naming things and there's nothing wrong with naming things, but the naming things is not the thing. It's the the essential ability to be able to trust abiding in, within ourselves that I think is, and it's like, it's, it's it's not even really a meditation, frankly. I, meditation is kind of like it. It's like just this natural skill of what it means to be human and what it means to be alive at at a very core, core, core level. And all of everything else is a layer on top of it, right? All of these other things, wounds and pains and so on. But if I if I can't trust being myself, if I can't trust my experience then I'm lost and everything else is corrupted. Everything else is corruptible. And so I just built the practice based on that, right? This sort of like super clean, super straightforward thing. You don't need a meditation cushion. You don't need a bell. You don't need a, and the most important thing is that it's transportable to like, I'm sitting here with you. And that practice is alive and present for me right now. Mm rather than there's the formal practice, but that I'm actively engaged, that it unfolds as part of how I operate uh, this returning, you know, this returning to myself. Mm, I love that phrase, returning to myself. Um, it's funny too, because I think about, you know, I've had a sitting practice for probably going on a dozen years now, but it's like you said, it was never about that. <laughs> it's not about how not about how still I get on the mat or how open or compassionate or how much I know myself on the mat. It just starts to infuse our presence as we move through the day. And we can, like you said, keep returning, keep returning, keep returning. And it almost, it becomes less of an intentional thing and more of just a habit of being mm -hmm. um, that we keep returning to to this this way, this this place of, of openness, curiosity, awareness. I think what it is, you know, it's not just, it's like a habit of being, it is being. We remember yeah. that actually that is being. Yeah. That is being, that that, that, that abiding, that self-abiding, that being with ourselves, that returning to ourselves, that is being. And the other things have corrupted our sense of being. And then we conflate the other things 
for who we are and we get confused. And so we exist in this kind of confusion. So I, what I love about it most is that it's not an accomplishment. It's a returning. It's not mm. a, it's not a, an acquisition of like, we get this way, but actually we remember who we are and we remember who we are as we are and allow for the complexity and develop the courage to be with the complexity of who we are, because obviously it's, all, it's not all pretty, you know, and it's not all pleasant. And that fundamental okayness is absolutely critical to the, you know, we're saying this word like spiritual life. It's like to the, to the life life, <laughs> you yeah. know, to the, to the living life, to the liberated life. That sense of like a fundamental okayness, like, yeah, I'm scared in my boots here and underneath the underneath it, like, I'm okay. Not I agree. Not I'm, I, I wish this for myself or the situation, but an okayness that is the, I feel like it's the wellspring of an appreciation of life and everything life is offering us. Yeah. I mean, you, you referenced that some of the things that keep us from this returning are that sometimes that natural state of presence harbors a lot of trauma. A lot of trauma, shame, wounding, uh, pain, hurt, um, a lot of like everything. And, you know, it's saying yes to all of that Mm -hmm. and being with it. And that is terrifying for so many. And it's terrifying. You know, I think I'm going to go on a limb and say that I think that we're shaped that way for it to be terrifying. That's shaped. That's not organic. That's shaped, right? And so then when you get to realize that, it's like, oh, I've, I don't belong to myself. Mm. I don't really belong to myself. I'm, I've been told and it's been signaled and it's been you know, whispered and it's been repeated over and over again where I should feel comfortable, capable, able to meet life and where I should shrink away. And I think of nothing else that part of this spiritual journey that was really about like liberating ourselves, you know, not, not, I mean, if you want to go to ascend to, you know, to Shita heaven or the ninth, uh, you know, hemisphere or something, I, I like that's not my business, but to live, to live a life, you know, free and comfortable and, and, and at ease in your body with all of the trials and tribulations that life comes with, that we, we have to turn the corner of a commitment to be willing to meet life as it is. And then to practice, right, unfurling the shaping that has made simply meeting life uncomfortable for us. Right? To like to un- unpack that. And once you get a like, it's like, oh, that's not mine. That's not mine. That thing, when you, when you talk about that, particular topic, you know, whatever it is, you know, race is a kind of like a big one, obviously, uh, you know, money, right? Like we're, well, you know, we get crazy about like conversations about money, like real conversations about money, all sorts of things. Those quote unquote, quote unquote social taboos, they've been shaped. And it means that you don't own your life. You don't, you don't belong to yourself. And, and when you, you, you kind of get underneath enough of those, you're like, you know, I don't, I want to own my own damn life. Like I want to belong to myself 
and we we turn some kind of corner. And I think that the way that we say, oh, like that's hard work, like that's hard work, it, it changes. Hmm. It changes, right? It becomes a, a way of being. Yeah, you just used the phrase, I want to belong to myself, which is fascinating to me because I was, as you were sharing, I was thinking, what is our impetus to form ourselves like within the shape that's been handed to us? And and I, you know, I wonder if a lot of that is this you know, primarily to belong at scale, to belong to something beyond ourselves. And you know, we feel like we have to because if we don't, then we we're effectively outcast and we don't we don't survive. And it's it's this shape or imprint that's been put into us. So I wonder how much that plays a role. And when you use the phrase "belong to ourselves," that feels to me like an unlock key. If in fact that that earlier assumption is true. It is absolute, absolutely true. It's, you know, I mean, through time, that was essential, right? Like, you know, we're, we're, we're really like frail creatures, you know, like our nervous systems, like right on the edges of our skin. And we couldn't survive, you know, the will to live. They say in the Yoga Sutras, like even the, even the wise ones cling to life. And so the will to live is one of the things that, um, you know, make us who we, who we are. And so we develop strategies for being able to survive. And of course, we couldn't survive without our tribe, you know, as, uh, you know, early human beings or what we've become as homo sapiens, we couldn't survive. Um, but our brains don't do a good job at differentiating those survival necess- necessities from the, you know, being on the soccer team. <laughs> it doesn't, it's not discerning that way. And so we have the same like existential feeling um, and existential crisis. It feels the same in our bodies, you know, at, you know, obviously mediated in terms of levels of intensity, but it's essentially the same. Like we're, we basically get up to situations where like, I'm going to die. And we, and then we're searching immediately for the strategy to not die. And then you go further along and we're preventing the possibility of even feeling that feeling. And so now we're giving up parts of ourselves in order to belong to that tribe and to make sure that that saber-toothed tiger is not going to be able to get us because somebody else is going to, you know, club them and, and, uh, and then we'll have dinner. Uh, like all of that is in us. And so the, the belonging, um, my theory is that one of the reasons that the core oppressions of our of our times and our you know human existence and you know in our own in our own society you know race and so on is because belonging has been corrupted mm. this essential critical developmental need has been corrupted and as a result of that and the our inability to see it and to recognize it for what it is uh you know you you said it, it's like so we give we we allow ourselves to to be shaped because belonging is so critical it's so necessary and i feel one of the mistakes that we 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 make is when we have conversations about race and you know gender and you know like uh, misogyny and you know patriarchy is is we suggest that this is mere ideology and it's not it's bio sociological and physiological like we are we are literally in, shaped in our, not just our heads and our thoughts, right? Our own feeling state and how we respond to, you know, situations where we get, you know, sweaty palms 
have been shaped. And because we make it an ideology, you're caught. You've been shaped. And I want you to at least, at the, at the very least, get into a place where you can be able to make your own decisions. And I, and I, hold, I hold people in, in the space of grace, if you will, that you at least deserve to be, have an awareness that you have been shaped and you are caught and that your decisions are therefore not your own, actually, which is really difficult for us to grasp in a hyper-individualist society that so many of us are actually not making decisions that are our own at all. (laughs) And I'll just say that, you know, and this notion of belonging to ourselves, which is just so, talk about like not a Zen Buddhist thing, we're always talking about no self. And so I'm just all kind of, (laughs) you know, um, messing up the program there by saying we have to have an own belonging. We have to have a belonging to ourselves as a fundamental starting point of being able to avail ourselves of any other kinds of spiritual practice development formation. Otherwise, we are subject to being, you know, corrupted beyond measure. Mm. Yeah, that lands so true. As as you're describing it, I had this really bizarre vision of a contortionist trying to fit into like a tiny, a tiny cube. Mm-hmm. And then like, you know, everything is in the box except, you know, like one shoulder and one arm. And there's just no way to make it fit in. So what you do, you cut it off because then it fits. And and now you've taken the shape. But what you've given up is a limb. You know, and 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 that shows up in all of our lives as you know, in, in all different ways. You know, that's just metaphorically. But you know, it's um when you ask that question, you know, like what have I stifled? What have I left behind? What have I excised from myself in order to take this shape? Um yeah, I think those are the questions that get us closer sometimes. Yeah, and I think that when when we're up against the question of you know broader social social issues, you know the limb is our humanity, hmm. and that's that's what we leave behind. We we leave behind, and I don't I don't mean that just you know colloquially. I mean we we leave behind our innate organic responses of compassion to other people's suffering. We leave behind our sense of, you know, care and concern and connection for people because they don't look like us. That limits our humanity. And so I always say, you know, don't go and, you know, take up like race training or, you know, go don't go deal with like the misogyny or patriarchy, you know, that you, you know that inhabits your life or, you know, whatever, transphobia, whatever it is. Don't go do it for them. Do it for yourself. Do it because you, you are committed to reclaiming that limb of humanity that got cut off for you to fit in that box of the corporate office or the uh, or your or your family you know your your you know your dad your dad's dad dad's dad's dad your mom you know reclaim it for yourself and that doesn't mean that that doesn't come without loss right because uh depending on where people are they may not be ready right they've been shaped too and so they may not be ready to go on that journey with you. And a lot of times we have to leave. I'm not saying everybody should run away from their family, but you have to change your proximity, right? To shift your proximity, that kind of leaving. But simultaneously that the healing that you can do for yourself is something that imparts to your whole lineage, to your whole family, to the, to the people that have 
been trapped in you know, ways of, you know, harming women or being, you know, egregiously racist or so on and so forth. And that, that is, you know, perhaps the most you know, promising, promising thing is that A, it doesn't have to be everybody. Like we don't have to kind of go and collect everyone into this great project of fixing everything because that's what happens. Then we're sort of imposing and we're trying to fix people. But rather, we can do this weird move of both allowing our own personal practice and liberation and unfolding and willingness to, to meet ourselves and, and to, to reclaim our own humanity, that it unto itself, and this is what, what happens from the beginning, we are gifting that to the collective. So mm-hmm. we gift ourselves. So paradoxically, this belonging to ourselves allows us to belong and gift to the collective. Yeah. And it's almost like if um, even any sense of belonging that you have without that is, it's actually not you who's belonging. It's the humanity divorced shape that you've assumed that has now been accepted into the collective, which at the end of the day does nobody any good. In fact, it does everybody harm. That's right. And it's, you know, it's, oh, you know, I could, I feel it like the, oh, in my chest of facing that, right? Turning to face that. And we, we all have our moments of, you know, that thing that we hear, and maybe this is one of them that you're like, oh, right, right. And then it will replicate itself it's being like the toyota syndrome you're going to see it everywhere you're going to be reminded of like oh yeah i'm giving this up here and i'm giving this up here and i'm giving this up here so i i advise you to be gentle with yourself and in a society that has taught us you know in hyper individual terms that everything is our fault right it's like it's all ours and it's all individual choice and so on that is not you know that you have been shaped and so it's not your fault and it is your responsibility that as you recognize these places that you have left a piece of yourself behind, that you are the one that then has the responsibility, while it's not your fault, you are the one that has the responsibility to reclaim yourself so that you can give yourself more wholly to your, to your lover, to your parents, to your children, to you know, your partner, to your family, even if they don't understand you even if they don't understand and they don't agree that that you're giving your whole self is a gift back to them. Hmm. That feels like a good place for us to come full circle as well. Um, I asked you this question a long time ago, but I'm going to ask it to you again, because apparently I've heard people change (laughs) (laughs) once in a while as we sit together in this cross-country container of a good life project, if I offer up the phrase, to live a good life, what comes up? For me, uh, to live a good life really means to be able to return to myself with grace, with ease, with consistency, and allow for the the whole of who I am to unfold. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you.
Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight-up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So I love how Rev Angel guides us to look within and return to ourselves as the path to finding belonging. By embracing the fullness of who we are, we can gift ourselves to the collective and transform society through interchange. Our next wisdom leader, Melissa Carter, understands the challenges of belonging as a senior director for global spiritual life at NYU. Melissa explores the intersection of spirituality, social justice, and belonging. In her early life, Melissa really grappled with belonging from losing both parents at a young age to being biracial in a world of binaries. And through a combination of inner wisdom, therapy, meditation, trusting that internal voice, she uncovered narratives imprinted by society and childhood trauma that caused her pain. And Melissa now helps students embrace their full humanity and find a sense of purpose and connection. She guides them to stay rooted in their bodies, welcome curiosity, and build community. Her goal is really to empower people to live authentically, heal divides, and contribute their gifts to the world, to create a space of belonging for all. So here's Melissa, who really shares how we can discover our deep sense of belonging. Growing up, I always struggled with my own sense of belonging. I think in so many different ways. 
within family structures, within my religion, within, you know, friend groups. My father, a Nigerian black man, my mom was a Ukrainian Jewish woman. And when they met, it was only a couple of years after interracial marriage became legal in our country, in this country, in the United States. And my mother's family completely disagreed with her dating a black man. Um, then at one point they decided that they wanted to get married. They, you know, they loved each other. They wanted to be together. They wanted to build a life together. My mother's family disowned my mom for marrying my dad. They set Shiva for her. That's the ritual of mourning in the Jewish faith. So for many years, she didn't have her parents. There was a bit of a reconciliation later on. I was already born at this point. I think I met my grandparents a few times, but there wasn't much of a relationship. And I just remember really feeling this sense of like, why don't we have any family around, you know, and that looks like my mom, or why do I look different than my mother? And the age of nine, I lost my father to lung cancer and he got diagnosed and within six months he had passed. Mm. And my mom really struggled with his death. She was also sick and she became quite abusive with me and my sister. She was in and out of the hospital. She was very sick. And in her last year of life, my sister and I basically stayed in our home alone while she was in the hospital. And someone would come and bring us you know, money for food for the week, but we really fended for ourselves. And she died. Of, and she died of, within a couple of weeks after that. For a moment, I felt her acceptance and her love that was quite conditional. And then it was gone. And now I had no parents. I had this family particularly my mom's parents, that didn't want to interact with us because of our skin color. And then my mother's half-brother, she had a half-brother who she was not close with, him and his family, my Aunt Sandra, my Uncle Frank, my cousin Mac, Dara and Daniel, took my sister and I in. Mm -hmm. And they know my uncle, who's one of my favorite people in the whole world, and actually my son is named after, knows me better than he knew his own sister. You know, so... I was at this time 13, my sister was 16, 17, and we moved to Florida from New Jersey and lived with them. And again, like here I was a little different, right? Like I was black, I was Jewish, I was from, the, from New Jersey, this is Miami, this is very different. I lost my parents, I'd come from an abusive home. So just growing up, I always felt that lack of belonging and that yearning to look other ways than I did. Hmm to gain acceptance, to gain belonging, to gain love. Uh, Cause that's what I was trained by my mom to do. So in college, I really struggled with that sense of belonging and that being who I am innately, wanting to be something I wasn't. So I did all sorts of things. I had multiple groups of friends, right? Like, you know, there was part of me that was the sorority girl and I joined a sorority. And then there was another part of me that dated, you know, drug dealers and, you know, just really, you know, not what I should have been doing and kept entering into these like romantic relationships that were abusive. And then in friend groups that weren't really true friends, but then I'd go into like my sorority sisters and it was, and I was, you know, vice president of this and secretary of that and, you know, on this board. And so like, I lived all these like double lives where in one area, I think the part of me that was so hurt and yearning for love was making very poor decisions. And I think there's like this innate part of me that did just knew who I was in my core 
who was making really smart decisions and decisions that were carving these new paths. And I don't think I would have known then that this part of me was doing that. But then after college, I was in New York for spring break or something like that. And, you know, I was a, a lively kid and I was at a club and I loved music. I just loved music so much. It was just uh, everything to me. And I would, even in college, I would throw parties on the golf course because why not? I was in college. I think I even like, oh yeah, I had my radio station. I was on the radio station. Just, you know, again, like very creative, like I found ways to be successful and then also making really poor choices that were, I think, furthering the narrative of you don't belong, you're not loved, you're less than deficit, deficit, deficit. And I don't know even if the parts of me that were being successful were doing great in school and were sociable and and in these clubs and this, that, and the other would have known that that was because of the strength of who I am was leading that. But I actually believe it was part of my faith walk and it was part of my spiritual journey. And so I switched to that to say, I'm like a cat. I've had multiple careers, but each one has led me to a deeper understanding of who I am and what I think I'm supposed to contribute to humanity. It's allowed me to find my own belonging. It's allowed me to unlearn the narratives I was taught as a child that were taught to me from my mother or from society or from just what our culture says. And um, I think find like my innate truth and then really start building and living a life from there. And so that's really the setup of how you know, coming from this really broken home. And, you know, I think about, I have no anger or animosity towards my mom. Mm-hmm. I think that she was actually quite courageous and took, was taking steps to do her unlearning walk of unlearning the ways in which racism and hate and uh, supremacy showed up at her. I think it was very courageous of her to say like, okay, I'm going to walk away from my whole family and marry the man I love and give birth to two children. And I think it's unfortunate that she didn't get to finish that unlearning. So I feel very much like I'm doing part of that for her. And so I feel like there's a lot of generational healing in my family that's happening. Yeah. It's so interesting. Yeah. There's so many threads in there. Like one of them that just really stood out to me is that it's almost like you're living these two lives that are tracking side by side. And one is this, there's some, there's a voice inside of you that says like, I know me and I have strength, and I can handle what comes my way. And the other voice is the voice of pain. It's the voice of wounding. It's the voice of, of suffering and just yearning to be seen and to be accepted and to belong as you are. And it's like they're doing this dance, weaving between each other, trying to figure out who takes the lead at any given time and what's constructive and what's deconstructive in that dance. You know, I appreciate your, your bringing up this dance of the pain and I also don't want to just say strength, but I would say this like deep love that I had for mm. life and this deep curiosity that I had and this deep wonderment that I had. I think the child within me was so curious. She was so full of wonder and, and filled with so much possibility. And I never lost that. And I think that's really beautiful. And this pain overshadowed it sometimes. But I think once I got them into relationship, once I got them talking, I got them dancing. I could wonder about my pain where I could sit with it and say, like, what is this pain? Is this even mine? Right? What is this narrative? What is this saying about me? Is it even true? And, you know, as I continued to get older and have more experiences, and honestly, therapy is a wonderful thing. <laughs> um, really, 
allow myself to peel away the narratives that were not mine so I could hear and see and remember the innate truth in me. And that's when my spirituality came. I was in my late 20s, early 30s and started meditating. I had you know, dabbled in the Jewish faith here and there, but always really struggled every time I went into Jewish community. I think I was, again, that pain just didn't allow me to yeah. see the community in front of me or see that I could belong. And then, you know, any slight action of bias or questioning of my Judaism or Jewishness or, you know, why am I there? I think just reinforced the pain and I just couldn't touch it. So I stayed away. So I became a spiritual person and I still never lost my commitment or my feeling that, you know, something divine was always around me and guiding me and with Mm. me. And I think the slowly sitting with the pain and peeling away the narratives allowed me to feel and see and hear more of that unseen divinity spirit and give or however, however you, you know, you call God. Right. And so slowly I got to hear that and that was able to hear my, my innate truth, my own voice, my own belonging. And I think the pain stopped leading the dance and became more of my teacher of how can I use this so I don't have to keep living it. And then once I, I think moved through that and grew up and, you know, obviously became more emotionally mature and secure. I think now my work is really centered in like, I want to help others make sure that they have the tools to find their own belonging and whatever that is. Is that in religion? Is that in their well-being? Is that in their creative expression? Is that, you know, and them just living an authentic life? You know, I think each of us has a unique gift or talent that this world definitely needs. And we're ever going to move forward towards, say, a more liberated world of love, equality, and equity. And each of us, I think, contribute to that. But we have to be empowered to offer it. And um, I want to be a part of that. Yeah. And I think I I needed to move through a lot of pain to be able to f- even feel that I could contribute to it. And now that I do feel like I can contribute to it, I don't feel like, oh, I just can. I feel like it's part of my human obligation. When students come to you, like as, as we shared in the beginning of our conversation, you've been at NYU for a number of years now, really exploring the intersection of mindfulness and social justice and spirituality and and belonging and all these really important things when students come to you, like, so you have this sort of like, you have a role at this major university in New York city where you have an interesting access point to students and to the experiences that they're having in whether it's academic pressure, social pressure, cultural pressure. Um, when they come to you with questions like what we're talking about and they're struggling, they're struggling with a sense of identity, a sense of belonging, a sense of Almost every 19, 20, 21 year old, no matter what your background is, is struggling with that stuff. I think most adults are, right? Yeah. So when they come to you, you have an interesting toolbox to draw upon when somebody shows up with you. I'm curious what you look to to help people in those moments. What's so amazing about this cohort of students and young adults that I get to work with. And I have the privilege to work with. So really, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. and so inspiring is they are in this moment of development of human development, self-authorship, where they're really determining how they want to self-author 
the next big moment of their lives and what's really for them and might be challenging some of the things that they grew up hearing and understanding and the rules and obligations and rituals in which that they lived. They might be challenging that a bit or they might not be, right? You know, and I think the first thing that's important is that they stay in their own bodies, Mm. right? Like, do they have a connection to their own body? And I think mindfulness, self-regulation, embodiment exercises, contemplation practices to put you in your own body in a world that's constantly giving you all this fuel and fire to get out of it, put you in your own body. So you're in your own experience and your own subjective experience and really inquire and examine what brought you to this moment. And so I think it's um, inviting in that self-regulation, that embodied practice, and inviting a sense of curiosity that's playful to students, inviting them to challenge and question all in a way that allows them to make deeper understanding and meaning of the things they're learning, of the things they're trying out in their different identities and roles and ways of being. And I would say another tool would be community. I think it's really important to, even if it's just one other person, finding a way to connect, putting someone in a community where they can practice being who they are. And I, and I talk about that a lot with my students mm-hmm. is this might feel tough. It may feel tough, like we just said, to bear witness to yourself or to be authentic or to be vulnerable or to be the one with a counterculture thought or to, you know, try something new. But can we just practice it? And this idea of practice, meaning that you don't have to get it right or wrong. You're just practicing, you're trying it out. And you'll learn from that practice. And then you'll take that information and choose to figure out how you want to practice next. And I think it's really important to always keep that sense of wonderment and child learning, stay curious, to learn, what did you learn, assess it, apply that information to make the next step that feels most aligned with who you are, which you're going to feel in your body. And so if you're not connected to your body, which has so much information for you, I think it's difficult to self-author in a way that is aligned and authentic and true to your innate being. You know, in an earlier conversation that we had, you posited a question that I wrote down because I just, it was really simple and short, Um, but I wanted to sit with it. And actually like the nature of the question is, how do you sit with what is? (laughs) And it seems like such a simple question, but it is not. There is so much in there and it is so powerful. And it's probably the type of question where you you keep revisiting that for years. <laughs> I mean, I think you can revisit that multiple times a day. Yeah. Right? Like, I think you should always be revisiting it. And I, I appreciate that that question stayed with you. And sometimes it is the simplest question that's the most complex answer. When you can sit with what is, I think you can then make choices for yourself that are aligned and authentic. And that's why I encourage my students or invite them to have tools of embodied practice, mindfulness, self-regulation, inquiry, to sit with what is, even in discomfort, is be comfortable being uncomfortable. Because the second you can sit with what is, you have your own type of belonging that you can move from. And that's really powerful. 
to build a life from there. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And it feels like a good place for us to come full circle in our conversation as well. So in this container of Good Life Project, if I offer up the phrase to live a good life, what comes up? I think living a life of curiosity and trying to live as truthfully and honestly as possible that's grounded in love of service to others and where you strive every day to see the humanity, not only in yourself, but in others, give the permission and grace to do so. Mm, Thank you. Thank you. I love how Melissa shows us that by sitting with our own pain and unlearning false narratives, we can find freedom to live authentically. And her work empowering people to embrace their humanity is just, it's super inspiring to me. I hope today's episode inspired you to look within and embrace all aspects of yourself. Our sense of belonging begins by accepting our humanity in its wholeness. By returning to our inner truth, we can authentically connect to the collective. So thanks to Red Angel and Melissa for sharing their wisdom on this journey to belonging. Now, if our conversation sparked insight and you'd like to integrate it into your life and work, I'd love to invite you to say yes to a simple belonging challenge or invitation, if that's an easier word for you, as we've done all month to wrap up this final January Jumpstart episode. So this week's challenge is, well, it's simple yet hard. It's to sit with a question or a series of questions. What would it take for me to feel like I belonged to myself? Like I saw myself, all of me letting go of judgment or shame, like I could bring the pieces and places of my personality and beliefs and value experiences and life into the room and say, yes, this is who I am and I'm worthy. To see yourself more clearly, to celebrate where you've been and to know that your value was endowed at birth. And if you're ever in a space where that's not embraced, then it's time to find other spaces, to feel like you're comfortable in your own skin and you belong to yourself without condition. That's today's journal prompt, to sit with it, to walk with it, to let it incubate and spend 10 or 15 minutes if that's comfortable for you, longer if it feels good, just journaling what comes up. So that's a wrap for this year's January Jumpstart series. And if you haven't already, be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. And if you're inclined, I'd so appreciate if you would share this episode with a friend who maybe needs a little more meaning and purpose and belief and connection and belonging in their lives because it's always so much more fun to learn and grow together. And if you love this episode, say that you'll also love the full conversations that we've had with Rev Angel Kyoto Williams and Melissa Carter. You'll find a link to those in the show notes. This episode of Good Life Project was produced by executive producers Lindsay Fox and me, Jonathan Fields. Editing help by Alejandro Ramirez. Christopher Carter crafted our theme music. Until next time, I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.